From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. Author and historian Philip Norman returns to the show this week. He's the author of many great books, including biographies of the Rolling Stones, Buddy Holly, Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, Elton John, and many others. In 1981, Philip Norman published Shout, The Beatles in Their Generation, the first serious biography of the Beatles. Uh, That book was revised uh, in recent years, and it stands alongside other books by Philip Norman, John Lennon, The Life, Paul McCartney, The Biography, and Philip Norman's latest book, George Harrison, The Reluctant Beetle. Philip Norman, welcome back to From the Bookshelf. Thank you very much. Nice to be back. You know, most people like me, for instance, uh, we hate to admit mistakes, and I I hate criticism. Never offer me any. I can't stand it. Uh, And I don't want to admit anything I've done wrong. But I really admire your ability to do that. I mean, when we first spoke, I think it was back in 2008, we were talking about your book, Shout, which I think is brilliant. But I thought that maybe that book was a little unkind to Paul McCartney. And you surprised me by agreeing and said that you plan to make it right by writing a book about Paul, which you did in 2016. And it was great. And now you've written a book about George Harrison. And right at the start of the book, you say that you got something wrong about him uh, in your previous writing. What, what did you get wrong about George It wasn't that. It was really a lack of knowledge because uh, Shout ended rather abruptly with the the end of the Beatles. Um, And I hadn't really sort of kept up with the story after that, uh, the time of George's death in 2001. And that was when I was called on to write a very long obituary piece. Um, And I did not give him enough credit in that. And I, in fact, it was uh, it was written under extreme pressure, 3000 words, you know, like a half a day or something. Um, but there were a couple of comments about him really based on my impressions of him um, through doing Shout, which was someone who was a bit dour, a bit lacking in the charm that the other Beatles always showed in their career, and somehow a bit ungrateful for um, stupendous good fortune that he had. I mean, he was one of the foremost blessed beings of the 20th century and and didn't seem to like it very much. I hadn't actually gone into his... uh, post-Beatle career, which of course was spectacular, particularly at the beginning. Um, And so uh, um, I had to learn about George really by writing the biographies of firstly John and and then Paul, and also George's best friend, Eric Clapton, where I could see that George had had a a really tough existence as a Beatle on the inside. He'd always been sidelined, he'd always been undervalued, um, always dominated by the tremendous songwriting partnership, the very the ease and the, the huge uh, abundance of the Lennon-McCartney songwriting partnership, which always kept George's own songs really limited so much on Beatles albums. So I began by writing those other two biographies to see that, of course, there was a lot to say about him, a lot of it in a negative way, a lot of the ways in which he had been sidelined and underappreciated. And that was what I really saw in this book. Uh, well, uh, since I read your book, and uh, since you wrote it, obviously, uh, the Beatles have released Now and Then, and I wonder if you've listened to it and what your uh, thoughts about the new Beatles song, Now and Then, 
Uh, well, it actually increased my um, respect for George, um, because George did not want to release that in the 1990s when it was possibly part of the Beatles anthology series of albums, because it is quite frankly terrible. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't sound like the Beatles. It doesn't sound like John Lennon. It sounds a bit like the sort of Beatles pastichists of the 70s, the Electric Light Orchestra, a bit like them. But it's a real mess and has really nothing. You know, the couple of it came from a tape, as you, I'm sure you know that John made in his so-called retirement at the late 70s. Two of those tracks came out as part of the anthology, were tremendously poignant and charming, but this seems to, to me to have absolutely nothing at all. Um, the other day I saw a cartoon in the newspaper that uh, had uh, the uh, this person looking at the billboard charts, and in the number one album place was a Rolling Stones album, and in the number one singles place was a Beatles song. And he said, how far back did we turn the clocks? <laughs> well, the because that is such a joke, the Rolling Stones album, um, you know, the phony Stones, really. Um, yeah. I'm afraid the Beatles have sort of almost become as phony with this release. Um, and, it, of course, it's surrounded by hype. The Beatles never needed hype. They simply released one after another wonderful single, wonderful album. And it, th these things spoke for themselves. They didn't need all the sort of ballyhoo that's gone on around this, you know, this fragment is really, George did not want to release it. So, um, you know, that's what, another one up to George for me. And, and you're not more a fan of Hackney Diamonds either, the new Rolling Stones album. Stones, they, they'd never, they weren't born in Hack Hackney is in the East End of London. Uh -huh. um, they, None of them came from Hackney. They probably never went to Hackney until they had to do a <laughs> press conference um, about this thing. And there is Mick Jagger at 80, is still singing like a sort of 19-year-old punk. And it's grotesque, quite honestly. <laughs> well, um, did you think it grotesque when, I don't know, uh, 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 the old uh, man uh, Muddy Waters or old man Frank Sinatra were performing? No, they didn't go on quite as long as this, actually. And, and the Muddy, Water, Muddy Waters was a great original. Those men, those, those African-American blues men had such style. They just could not lose it, you know, um, however old they got. Um, this is a, quite different. This is the, the Stones going to what has been called the biggest ATM machine in the universe for another withdrawal. <laughs> um, and they're always in credit. Yeah, so of course you and I, we have enough money, so we don't have to do that kind of stuff. But those guys are starving. I know, and they need sponsorship. I mean, it's a sponsorship. Good God, you know, <laughs> this isn't some cash-strapped charity at all. Um, and also, the thing is that, um, you know, it it is done with such cynicism, quite honestly. You know, and um, they they are good. You know, they're good when they get on stage. They're, there's no, it's, it's only really Mick and, and Keith now, and Keith has bad arthritis, so it's really Mick carrying that show and it is amazing that he can do that um but the, all this business about hackney diamonds you know yes yes gov yeah yeah i'm a real cockney gov is all such it's phony it's phony the phony stones amazing what's amazing is that they were the most unstable of all the bands in the 60s who could have imagined that they would have um, last, yeah. and, and people used to ask mick jagger when he was 20 what he was going to be doing when he was 30 yeah <laughs> was 14 it seemed inconceivable he's still singing in that voice that silly voice and he's still doing it at, at 80 whatever is he i think he's 80 right 81 something yeah, he's 80 yeah and uh and and paul mccartney is performing on tour as well 
That's right. And in fact, I've just heard from Australia that he's there and he does three hours on stage wow. without, a sip, without a sip of water. Um, <laughs> Amazing. Without an intermission. When I saw him in Liverpool, um, when I was doing the McCartney biography, which he actually sort of authorised by the back door after all of that, you know, being thought to be anti-Paul. Um, yeah. and, and he actually rang me up out of the blue once and sort of said, oh, I'm ringing you up to see what you're like. You know, this bloke who hates me. I said, well, I don't hate you. We talk like half an hour and, and um, I suddenly sort of seemed to start to get the point of him really, just talking to him like man to man, not as a writer. Yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. the Echo Stadium, he he um, the audience got up as soon as he appeared on stage and, and the standing ovation lasted for three hours yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Of course, uh, audiences are different now than they were, right? I mean, uh, if you've gone to concerts lately, uh, there's a lot more cheering and standing and screaming i mean of course there was a lot of screaming for the beatles don't get me wrong but uh but that was only 35 minutes this is now like you know hours on end of standing and screaming this is also audience participation of taking selfies of themselves with mccartney in the background uh, as an added attraction as it were you know the, the audience now has an ego as big as the performer well, the the one time that I saw Taylor Swift in concert, which was maybe ten years ago or something, um, it was annoying because her fans, mostly teenage girls, sang along with every word. That's not something that happened when I went to see the Beatles in 1966. There was a lot of screaming, but you could still hear the Beatles themselves singing. But when the when twelve year old girls are singing off key in your ear, you really can't hear the artist anymore. Uh, but at her in her latest tour. She's encouraging the, the singing along, um, and not in a Pete Seeger-esque way, but like, sing every word as loud as you can. Well, you were lucky if you did hear the Beatles, if you went in the Beatlemania years, because, I mean, that is really, uh, George, uh, my subtitle, The Reluctant Beatle, he wasn't a reluctant musician by any means, because he yeah. taught himself to play the guitar at the age of about 14, just by listening to the radio and painstakingly working out how to play the, the solos and the intros and the licks that none of the other young musicians in Liverpool knew how to play. George, and that's what got him into the, what were then the Quarrymen who became, then, then became the Beatles. Um, it was when the screaming started and, and no one could hear these crafted guitar solos that he'd worked so hard on that he was very annoyed. And in America, when they started touring, there was really no security at all. No. So he would often be playing with a couple of hysterical young women hanging around his neck and still having to find <laughs> notes. Um, that was what really pissed him off.
Before we get into the the body of your new book, um, George Harrison, the Reluctant Beetle, Philip Norman, uh, it's there's kind of a Rashomon thing happening with you. I mean, you've told this story now from this is the fourth different angle, I guess, on it. Um, and what I want to know is, has your view changed in the forty years uh, since you wrote Shout? Do you see the Beatles differently? Well, the Be- Shout, um, which I must tell you was written against extreme discouragement from all my friends and professional colleagues in journalism, all of whom said, uh, you are mad. Everybody knows everything there is to know about this story. That was in 1979. And of course, that was not true. And it turned out to be demonstrably not true. So much of the Beatles story was actually unknown to the the four Beatles. They didn't know what was going on around them or a lot of what was going on around them. Yeah. Um, it is still what their great publicist, their great press officer, Derek Taylor, called the 20th century's greatest romance. Um, and bits of it are still surfacing. There's always something coming up, a contract or, a, a, you know, a, an artifact or something. Um, and I regard the, the, the three, really, the, uh, McCartney, Lennon and Harris. Um, I've tr- tried to treat them rather like epic Dickensian novels, uh, where uh, quite an ordinary young man uh, faces the most extraordinary changes in his life. And, uh, Dickens could never have conceived the changes that overcame these three young men. Um, and it just really goes on developing. You know, and I, I am a bit like Michael Corleone, and I think I'm out, and they pull me back in again. Exactly. In this case, though, what was yeah. interesting was it really was a kind of a negative story. I mean, Lennon and McCartney are such powerful characters that they were always trying to get into the frame, but I had to keep George absolutely in the centre. And a lot of it was what George wasn't uh, experiencing and what he was somehow being shortchanged and uh, overlooked, um, sidelined so much of the time. <laughs> And by sheer dogged determination, managed to eventually being around two great songwriters, of course, was a help. Of course, some of that rubbed off. But he had such discouragement from the the sort of star chamber of Lennon, McCartney and George Martin, the producer, and wasn't deflated and discouraged and eventually wrote not as many great songs as Lennon, McCartney, but the best of his are up with the best of theirs, I think. Well, you you said I think you said something is the second most recorded song. I don't know if you mean the second most recorded Beatles song or second most recorded song ever. Or well, well, it's it was Frank Sinatra who'd been a real devout Beatle hater for a lot of the sixties. Even true. he said it was you know one of the great love songs ever written. Unfortunately, he misascribed it to to Lennon and McCartney. Uh, dedicate still, this to Mister Lennon and Mister McCartney. Yeah, the thought was there. <laughs> Yeah. Um, 
well, uh, tell me, do you feel that I feel that you are less judgmental than you were when you wrote Shout? I mean, you tell me a lot of things about George that are not particularly great things, but you don't um, you don't opinionate. I don't know that's not the right word, but you just lay it out there and, and let the reader make their own decision. That's because George is much more complex uh, as a personality. Um, the, the least, perhaps the least conspicuous member of the group, because Ringo started to have his own sort of perverse following. Because as Walter Shenson, the producer of Hard Day's Night, described him as the adorable runt of the litter, um, but George is just a mass of contradictions and a mass of sort of insecurities. Strange because he came from the only really secure, stable family. He, there was no trauma in his family background as there was with the others at all. Um, but everything you think about George is instantly contradicted by something else. So uh, this is a man who rails against what he calls the material world. And yet he writes the first song complaining about income tax. Um, this is... Uh, someone who can rise to the heights of unselfishness and nobility with his historic charity concert for Bangladesh. And then breaks the first law of the Beatles, which is you don't have it off with another Beatles wife. Um, and so, and that's with Ringo's first wife, Maury, um, which is really sort of sleazy and disloyal behavior beyond description. Um, his wife, his first wife, Patty Boyd, t told me that uh, he was really lovely until he learned to meditate. Usually it's the other way around. People <laughs> become lovely after they can meditate. Um, but George, you know, he was with Derek Taylor, who I mentioned uh, on, a, on a plane, and uh, he's got his wearing his little prayer wheel or something and chanting. And the cabin attendant said, would you like your lunch, Mr. Harrison? He said, fuck off, can't you see I'm meditating? <laughs> That's not what meditation is supposed to do. I guess it wasn't. Well, I, but that's uh, the interesting complexities. But yet you, um, uh, you don't draw. Uh, you, at least you don't uh, write any uh, uh, opinions about the, these behaviors. You just lay them out there, which is, which is interesting. I think the I think it's self evident. I mean, if I'm I'm talking at times, he could be truly horrible. Um, he also had a um a, a most dreadful, inopportune, uh, uh, acid tongue, which on a couple of occasions, what one particular occasion, could have absolutely scuppered the Beatles' chances of recording with George Martin, who um was really an audition actually, and um uh, Martin because A and R men in those days they were called artists and repertoire men rather than producers. They were they were omnipotent. They they signed the acts, they supervised the recording, they decided what what would be released. Martin was nice enough to say you can listen to the playback of your stuff. If there's anything you don't like, um, tell me. And George said, I don't like your tie for a start. Now any other A and R man would have probably said, "Well, then, bugger you, then that's that's <laughs> it, you know," and walked out, and that would have been the end. They, he was their last hope, in fact. Um, so there are moments when his acid tongue is really horrible, but he is also at other moments very generous, very understanding. He can can switch. Uh, one of his his this woman who was a PA to him and to the, the Stones at different times, Chris O'Dell, 
said that he could switch from sort of piety, Hindu sort of devoutness to wanting to take, to do coke and party and get drunk and then switch back again in a moment. You never ne knew when it was going, the switch was going to happen. So it, so I think my opinion, you know, like his, my opinion of his treatment of first wife Patty was was awful at the end, despicable. But I mean, I don't really have to spell that out because it is self-evident. Um, you just mentioned that you talked to Patty, and I know you also quote her book a couple of times. And there are other, there's been, since, I think Shout was not only the first serious book about the Beatles, but I think it was one of the first serious books about rock and roll. It predates almost every other uh, serious book. But there have been, I think, uh, 57,000 books about the Beatles uh, since Shout was written. Um, and uh, four of them, yours are including the revised shout. Um, but you uh, you quoted quite a few other ones. Are, are there any ones that you find particularly useful uh, in the Beatles library? None at all. No, none. Um, none. Um, the thing is that, um, that there is more bilge written about pop music than anything else, probably with the exception of food. Um, there's more <laughs> bilge written about food. Um, but no, because... I try to approach it in a way that is really antithetical to the way most so-called rock biographers work. And in, I'm particularly thinking of American examples in this case, who think that just the more facts they fling onto the page, um, the better and the more serious and the more sort of plodding the style, um, that, that is more learned and that is more, you know, that's the way to do it. I don't think it is. I, I try to, I don't overload paragraph with facts i try to make a selection and give an impression give more of an impressionistic version of the story than simply just do it statistically or like a like a like a cricket handbook or a baseball you know record or something like that and do you think that's because you're a novelist you bring a novelist touch to you well, yes I, I i started as a novelist and yes and i do as i say try to sort of think of them as dickensian or novels uh, non-fiction novels on a dickensian scale um and that does mean of course talking about the world in relation to um what's going on in the charts without sounding like this great example i remember there's like an audio tape on a british Air, airways flight um with the rock and roll years formula and it said it was 1961 in east berlin they were building a wall but it didn't stop bobby v having a hit with take good care of my baby <laughs> so that is that is the example to avoid are you going to write a ringo book it seems inevitable you're going to write a ringo book now that would not be a book that would be a booklet <laughs> Ringo Starr no, says that no. that uh, you know he's lived a long life, but that people are only interested in seven years of it. That's true, and also um, I did actually look into his. Particularly, uh, I wrote something about the various parents and guardian figures in in the in the Beatles' lives, and his mother was absolutely heroic. Ringo's mum, Elsie, mm. had three or four jobs at once, and he he had he was dogged by terrible health in his childhood always in hospitals and children's homes and dreadful, dreadful complaint, you know, chronic complaints. And she was just wonderful. Um, so his, his mum, Elsie, I think perhaps she deserves the biography, possibly. Were you tempted yeah. in a book about George Harrison, Philip Norman, to just start the book in 1970, having already told us, you know, the early stuff, 
that is the the breakup of the Beatles doesn't happen until two thirds of the way through your book. So did you, did you uh, do you think you waited it all properly? I think so. I mean, it had to start with his death, of course, uh, um, and that was only two months after nine eleven. And yet, even so, um, every front page and every news television news bulletin was cleared for that to be the lead story. And there were no complaints about trivialization at all. Uh, you know, that, that was the, the, the place, even though he was much more mysterious. It, he was the second Beatle to die tragically, um, and but much less known about him than there, there had been about John. Um, and people felt not so, very close to John, even after years of being away from Britain and New York in so-called exile or retirement. And George had always been this very obviously private, um, internalized sort of person. Um, that seemed the right way to do it. And also there were lots, there was lots more about the Beatle years to say. Um, I did, I had met years ago one of the, in his own rather charmless way, he called these young women who waited outside all the Beatle homes and outside the, the office in Savile Row. George called them apple scruffs, extremely charmless, and at his most charmless there. Um, and there was one in particular uh, who it was, they used to wait outside in all weathers, these young women, um, winter and summer, day and night, really. Um, they weren't groupies. They, they, they were just utterly devoted fans. They spent so much time in the open air, they were so fit that the ones outside McCartney's house in North London could actually run faster than his Mini Cooper. When he came through <laughs> the gates, they could beat him to the traffic lights at the end of the road. Um, but in fact, what's happened with George eventually sort of came to appreciate their loyalty and their sort of utter supportiveness and wrote a song called Apple Scruffs. And so they turned into his muses. Um, and that seemed to be a story worth telling from their point of view. So I don't just have the George point of view in this book. Um, quite a lot of it is about these sort of young women on this endless vigil that they kept. Now what you sitting there Seeing the passers-by Like you have no place to go But there's so much they don't know about Apple Scrubs You'll be stood around the my smiles have touched my tears Now it's been a long, long time And now you've been on my mind My apples crossed Apples crossed Apples crossed How I love you How I love you
I'm Gary Shapiro. This is From the Bookshelf, and we're talking this week with Philip Norman. He's the author of George Harrison, The Reluctant Beetle. Well, let's talk a little bit about the solo output of George Harrison as a recording artist. It started with a, a bang with the three-record set of, of all, all Things Must Pass. Do you think that it achieved its potential? Well, it was more than uh, certainly shocked the his former bandmates and what it really largely consisted of was material. He hadn't been able to get onto Beatles albums. He got some very good stuff in the end onto Beatles albums, um, but still had a job to get even a song like Something, you know, which is acknowledged to be his masterpiece. Uh, that was kicking around for a long time. Um, and then I suppose the most dramatic of his songs, While My, My Guitar Gently Weeps. It really only got into sort of the Beatles canon because he brought Eric Clapton along to a recording session. And the Beatles rather sat up and took notice if Eric Clapton was there. So they applied themselves more and, of course, made a, a, an amazing, amazingly dramatic and enigmatic song out of that. Um, but he had all of this stuff left over and continued to have this bank of work to draw on long after all things must, must pass, well into the 70s. Well, there, it's, uh, when the Beatles Anthology 3 came out and we heard a Beatles version of All Things Must Pass, the thought just was like, oh, you don't have room on Let It Be for this thing? What's the matter with you guys? Well, it, they were just in the habit. John Lennon, it was always this two-year age gap between... John and George, um, which started out when John was an art student and George was still at school and looked really childlike, his little sticky out ears. His adoring parents had uh, given him a magnificent guitar. Very few guitarists in Liverpool at the time had such a guitar as this. It was called a Hofner President, German-made guitar, made actually by a company that made violins. So they were very beautifully made, these guitars, and cut away and with knobs on it and all that. And it was really the, the guitar they wanted into the quarrymen, I think, more than George to begin with. Um, and only the first, only, well, perhaps the first time John, John really praised George was, you know, eventually when uh, Within You, Without You gets you know, onto Sergeant Pepper. Um, and it's rather sort of guarded praise for that. And you think actually that's really, he's getting digging at Paul is what he's doing here. You know? yeah, um, and so uh, he, he just always stood, the Beatle warring went on, of course, after they broke up, well, you know, all through the seventies and into the eighties as well. And you wonder why it went on because it was rather like sort of great love, I suppose, turns into great hate. They were so close. And they, in the end, they were like warring nation states, you know, one declaring war on the other and making peace with the first one. And it was like the old wars in the Balkans, really. And, and all of them, I guess, except Ringo, but all of them seem like they're a, a part of it. I can remember hearing an interview with George or a quote in the Rolling Stone or something where he said, I'll work with John Lennon any time, but I'll never work with Paul McCartney. He said, Paul, guitars, um, Paul McCartney ruined me as a guitarist. Well, there's no sign of his being ruined on any of the work he did after, you know, with the Beatles and after, you know, as a solo performer. Um, but he's carried that sort of very, you know, he could carry a grudge and it wasn't always reasonable. Well, um, you, you mentioned his marital infidelities when he was married to Patty. Is that when he had his affair with Ringo's wife? And how did Ringo... Yes. 
Oh yes, yes. Well, he he. One of the things he liked about Indian religion and mythology, um, he was very sincere about, and of course about the music. But he also identified with the love god Krishna. He thought he could have as many concubines as Krishna did, uh-huh. um, and he, but he even started uh, being unfaithful in the house, in his house where Patty lived. This huge Gothic folly called Friar Park in Oxfordshire. Patty would be in the house, and and Maureen. Starkey, as her real name was, would turn up and say, oh, I've come to see George, and uh, is he in the studio? And then the next morning, she'd still be around. And it was really, you know, very affronting to, to Patty. He was a, a terrific, terrific person and always was. Um, she finally um, decides to confront them. But of course, she takes a long time in this huge house to find the right bedroom. There are about 20 bedrooms. Um, but she knocks on the right door eventually, and George opens it and uh, in the back, in the in, in the background, Maureen is lying up just on a mattress on the floor, and George says, "Oh, she's she's feeling a bit tired, so she's having a lie down." <laughs> <laughs> supposed to explain the whole thing, and uh, so if Patty, in the end, having you know really, and to this day, I think George was the, was the love of her life, really. But um, she, she he drove her away into the arms of his best friend Eric Clapton, who had actually worshipped her. For, secretly except in the song Layla for years before that well um let's diverge a little bit and talk about Clapton for a second because I read Clapton's autobiography which I thought was terrible but I read it and uh I was struck by the capriciousness which with which he then threw away his relationship with Patty that he was so desperate for that he got on his knees and all that but he didn't really hang on to her for very long. Well, this was the odd thing about Clapton, um, and all show, and also you have to realise that um, in, in those in the terms of sort of macho guitar super, superhero, um, a, a, coveting a guitar and coveting a woman are about on the same level, and uh, he would, you know, long for a certain guitar, and then when he got it, he didn't want it anymore. He longed for a certain kind of high-performance car and when it arrived he was tired of it already and having pursued Patty for so long once she actually said okay well I'm here and I'll be with you he lost interest in her. Strange the really strange thing was that um, having cuckolded his best friend like that um, he and George then become even closer friends in the years that followed. Patty feels kind of overlooked now George, you know, George can overlook as well as be overlooked. He's overlooked by his bandmates, but he, you know, in the end becomes indifferent to this really tremendous woman who has inspired him to write this one of the, this great love song. Only she says, of course, when he tells her that this amazing song is about her, and it's it's a fantastic song. It's rather it has a sort of Harold Pinter sort of effect of the pauses being as eloquent as the words. And um, but he tells her in the same sort of tone of voice as he'd say, "We're out of detergent." One day in the kitchen, <laughs> <laughs> a little misogyny there. But uh, wh- how about how did Ringo react to George having an affair with Maureen? Well, this all came out yes at another, um, you know, at, at one of the at John's house, John's stately home, and. Uh, George's stately home are not that far apart. Uh, John sells it, sells that to Ringo, and it's uh, 
George goes up rather sort of Eric Clapton's gone up to George and says, I'm in love with your wife. And then George with equally sort of awful tactlessness says the same to Ringo. Ringo is actually very upset and sort of in, in a worse state than anyone's seen him. He, he, you know, he, it really has a bad effect on him. But George in another way, here's another contradiction. George is enormously helpful to Ringo right from the time that he joins the Beatles. George wants him in the Beatles and therefore wants him to feel a full member of the band immediately. And so he always makes sure he shares a room and they're sharing rooms in these small hotels when they're not very famous. They're still touring Britain. Um, and George, you know, helps helps him get a really big hit single and encourages him to try songwriting himself. So George is brilliantly a good friend to him at the same time as he's he behaves appallingly to him. Hmm. And I guess eventually all was forgiven because they continued to occasionally work together and be friends. Oh yes, no, the, the, um, the, their friendship survived all of those things. And it was about in the end, the most constant really um, George and Ringo. Yes, it was. Uh, and uh, Ringo was one of the first ones to really have a successful solo album. His album Ringo was huge. Yeah. Yeah, that came and went rather quickly. Uh, um, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of talent there. There was a, a lot of charm, and uh, he, he really went into movies more than uh, recording. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so George went on to make albums, uh, not a huge amount of albums. I mean, no one has made as many albums as Paul McCartney, but uh, every few years there was another one. I mean, I think he made them uh, like annually up until around 1970 six or something and then they became more sporadic yeah and uh but he was um he he was also doing lots of other things again that i hadn't quite appreciate until i really looked closely at this life um he was much more multi-dimensional than and even than john john was more than a musician he was a poet and an artist george was um, a, a record producer he had his own record label um, he was a talent scout. He signed up artists to his own label. Um, then there were things like getting involved in the film business uh, with the company Handmade Films, which in the 1980s, British cinema really had quite a renaissance. And it was Handmade Films, his films, uh, that, that were really part of that. And George really was a, a movie mogul, as well as sort of caring for his garden, huge garden that he had at Prior Park. He even said he'd rather be re remembered as a gardener than as a musician. But he's thinking about the garden and the environment. But he also loves the reek of petroleum in the pits at, uh, at Grand Prix races. He's a huge Formula One fan. Um, he, he's obsessively devoted. He's not nostalgic for the Beatles at all, but he's very nostalgic for a, um, a particular British music hall entertainer of the 30s and 40s called George Formby and we'll go to George Formby fan conventions, he'll never go to a Beatles convention, but he'll go to a George <laughs> Formby convention so, so there's so many sides to him and a lot of them are, are again contradictory Once uh, he married uh, his second wife Olivia, was he faithful to her? Evidently not um, she was a woman of obviously of great wisdom and and as it proved great courage on the particular night when George might have become the second Beatle to be assassinated yes. or the, the, the second ex-Beatle to be assassinated 
and Olivia came to his rescue and uh, and sort of diverted this intruder who had actually stabbed George forty times, many times near the heart. Oh my God! And that she she sort of appreciated that you know she she got it you know what being a rock star's wife was like and after a certain point he did sort of settle down but for a long time yes he was uh, he was it was the old rule of it doesn't count on the road that means sex doesn't count if you're away from home and that went on for a long long time being beat up and battered around being sent up and I've been shot down you're the best thing that I've ever found And only with her Reputations changeable Situations tolerable But baby, you're adorable And only with her I'm so tired of being lonely I still I think that the, one of the greatest things that ever happened was the fact that the Traveling Wilburys came to be and made such a wonderful record, the first record particularly. Um, and uh, you you cover the story in, in your new book, George Harrison, The Reluctant Beetle, Philip Norman. Um, 
how, how did the traveling Wilburys happen? What an unlikely it thing. It was all kind of accidental. Uh, they were all in Los Angeles about the same time. And then um, George uh, found, to his amazement, he could get Bob Dylan on the phone. I mean, you could ring Bob Dylan for two years and not he wouldn't pick up. But then he suddenly did. Um, and it was all a kind of really like a superstar conceit to have a, aliases, you know, and pretend to be these sort of homespun uh, brothers. Uh, but they actually were. It was the, the dynamic was completely unselfish and uncompetitive within the Travelling Wilburys. And they all got on very, very well. They all happened to like the ukulele. They all liked um, Monty Python's Flying Circus. I mean, America became a huge hit in America. You'd never think it would, but it did. Um, and it was absolutely the opposite of his experience in the Beatles. Uh, there was no competitiveness, there was no backbiting, there was no politics. They just got on really well. And uh, it, they made happy music. Um, it was called Skiffle, this homespun British music of the 50s, um, called Skiffle, the mixture of country and rock and blues and jazz, uh, very British sort of hodgepodge. It was right, it was called Skiffle for the 80s, really. And it, and so it was. And George really discovered the pleasure of being in a band, which he never really had known before. I want to ask you about uh, Get Back, the Peter Jackson film, of which I know you saw it because there's some references to it in George Harrison. What what was your opinion of the film? Well, it's called a mammoth documentary. I would call it Elephantine. I mean, <laughs> if you're going to have... Uh, a documentary. Don't let a fan make a documentary. A fan has got no idea what to leave out. So mm -hmm. in the end, it's eight hours, much of which, I mean, there are fascinating little moments, obviously. Um, but the the Michael Lindsay Hogg final, you know, the final cut of all that footage, which went out as Let It Be, is a very good documentary and very indicative of what was happening. And it's the Beatles mm -hmm. being honest, as John said, this is us without our trousers on. And so please end the game now. And they always were honest and they were going out on the note of total honesty. Um, but now you have endless, endless real-time stuff of the Beatles playing like a very bad tribute band. So I, my plea to Peter Jackson is please stick to Hobbits and the First World War. <laughs> Don't keep telling us what a great fan you are because fans can't do it, can't be objective. Well, uh, would you like to see the film of Let It Be made available again and maybe souped up the way Get Back was? Well, it couldn't be, of course, because, you know, it, it was made into a manageable cinema release, in, you know, back in 1970 when it came, it came out. Um, but, and Jackson had, was just all the outtakes, really. Um, right. But also right. his determination to prove his own thesis, which is the thesis, the thesis of a besotted fan, that the Beatles loved each other. They were warm and jovial with each other while yeah. they were making them. Of course, in a, on a freezing film set at Twickenham Studios, John is on heroin. Um, there's an off-camera off um, fist fight between uh, George and John because George has said something horrible about Yoko. Um, it was just not true. You know, I called it the Pollyanna version of the Beatles, which he he just had to try and prove that. And it, it, it just did not come through, even in his own elephantine eight-hour version. 
Do you think Let It Be will ever be made available again? Do you think the Beatles, the existing Beatles, don't want it out there? Paul doesn't want it out there? Well, you can get little bits of it on all over YouTube. The, the, the bit where George um, uh, it sort of snaps at Paul, uh, um, who, who is really, it tr it's true, Paul is, he has his black beard and he's rather like a keen young gymnastics teacher um, urging the lazy pupils up the wall bars. Um, and But actually in the Jackson version, because it's spun out much longer than the usual version, Paul is actually walks off for a few minutes, walks off the set. So it's an even worse bust up than it's always seemed all these years. So there's not warmth and joviality at all. Now, when you write a book about uh, a musician and you've written many, do you have to like the music that the artist makes? Yes, you do. I mean, purely, I mean, the Albert Goldman to write 800 page book on John, whom he despised, um, was completely pointless and, and a horrible uh, the result was horrible and horribly um, uh, ignorant as well he only came to Britain for two weeks um, and the, the, uh, the fabrications of course um, throughout the book were absurd utterly absurd um, but of course you have to love your monster they do behave like monsters occasionally and you, you just have to go with that um, it does provide wonderful comedy as well to the objective writer. Well, what, once once you've written a book, say about Buddy Holly or Elton John or or Jimi Hendrix, do you uh, are you then like okay, and you're done with that, or do you still uh, sometimes want to hear uh, the full Buddy Holly deep dish catalog? Well, it's not a very big catalog, of course, because he died when he was twenty two. Yeah. Um, in that case, that was a very much a sort of personal project because um, Buddy Holly, for me and a lot of other British boys in the terrible decade of the, the 50s, the end of the 50s, in this completely bleak, um, joyless atmosphere there was in Britain, um, Buddy Holly really did sort of change our existence, change our viewpoint. He seemed to be, although he was only a few years older than we were, he seemed to be like a father figure, like sort of pointing with the way to something optimistic and bright. And also showing us how to play the guitar using slightly different chords each time but you could follow. So George was the same way. John and Paul were the same way. Um, Clapton, the same. You know, he, that whole next generation of British sort of pop superstars owed their start to Buddy Holly. And to find out that he was actually in real life just as charming and sweet as a person as he seemed to be in his music, was wonderful. And uh, of course made the tragedy of his death even worse. And uh, my adventures with, um, particularly with his, his widow, the widowed bride from the Don McLean song, American Pie. Um, I had to, it took me a year to, even to get her on the phone to talk to her. And her opening line was, all writers are scumbags. And, <laughs> And she finally agreed to meet me in Dallas. Um, if, uh, but, but it had to be at her lawyer's office, and I would have to pay for the lawyer's time. Oh. And when, I actually, when I actually met her, I was expecting this little Dresden figurine, sort of the widowed bride, you know, the tragic sort of heroine of that song. But she was dressed in all in black with a floppy black berry. She looked like a French fascist policeman from the Second World War. <laughs> um, but fortunately, she relented and said, I didn't have to pay for the lawyer's time. We could just go and have lunch. 
Yeah. So there's an adventure. There's an adventure with almost every one of these books. Not always to my great credit, and I often look very stupid. You know, sort of, I've never, I've often thought this is no job for a grown up. I still think that. But so you don't get to the point where you say, I never want to hear another song of this person because I've spent five years writing this book about them. Oh, no, no. I mean, I, I think I choose. I have chosen the top echelon. Um, and really, there's nobody much left in the top echelon apart from Dylan. Um, yeah. And funnily Where, enough, there's there's a song. Um, sorry. Elvis. You could write about Elvis. I think that's been done. Uh, I think that has been done to death, quite honestly, um, mm -hmm. in this sort of plodding, solemn style. But still, you know, it's been done. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you uh, still feel like you would write a novel, novelistic uh, tendencies? Would yes. And indeed, I've written a couple in, in the same span of time. And I've written two musicals which have been produced and also oh. a short stories and a novella as well. Um, in the gaps between these biographies. Um, and it is such fun because you haven't got half the world looking over your shoulders. You have with anything to do with the Beatles in particular. Every self-appointed expert in in the cosmos is looking over your shoulder, waiting for you to make a mistake, hoping you'll make a mistake, actually. Well, you were when you were talking about Buddy Holly there, it made me wonder, did you have a... a uh... A band, a, sk a skiffle band, or a oh yes, I did. Yeah, what he did was he helped the skiffle groups turn into rock bands because he had the first real rock band himself. Um, yes, and yes, I, my father ran a rock and roll dance on a seaside pier, uh -huh. hating it, hating it like all parents did, just to, to use this premises uh, in the winter time, this huge old theater on the end of the pier. And so, yeah, I had a band, and then later on, I wrote a. Also, a television play about Buddy, a short story about Buddy Holly, which was turned into a television play. Um, oh, yeah, and um, contrasting my my uh, life as a schoolboy with him with his last day on just before taking the fatal flight. Is that available? Can we see that? It sounds good. You can find it on uh, yeah on YouTube again. It's the the title was Words of Love. Oh, I'm going to find that. Well, uh, Philip Norman, what are you going to write next? Well, that's what I'm wondering. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to, I've written two volumes of memoir. Um, the last one came out at Christmas, which is about my time as a journalist on the Sunday Times magazine in the 60s, when it was very, very wealthy and prestigious. And I was allowed to travel anywhere I wanted to and interview anybody that I wanted to as well. So I could spend, and in those days, there were no PR people getting in your way. So I could spend, you know, I spent a day as Stevie, actually looking after Stevie Wonder in Philadelphia because his brother hadn't got anyone else to look after him. Wow. But I also interviewed Colonel Gaddafi in Libya. So I had a very nicely mixed sort of you know, bag of assignment. And it's about the, the funny side of that, really. It's called We Danced on Our Desks because we had the greatest time in the world. We did dance on our desks at the, the annual Christmas party. So retirement is not in the cards for you. You're going to keep going. Well, I, I'm certainly good for nothing else. <laughs> well, I hope whatever comes next, that you'll stop by here on From the Bookshelf and talk with us again. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to talk to you again, Steve. Thank you. The book, uh, George Harrison, The Reluctant Beetle, Philip Norman. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank mm -hmm. you.
that's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and will come back and see us again next time. In the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf. And she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.